Well, good morning and welcome back to our study of the book of Ephesians. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them there to the book of Ephesians. I'll give you a second to turn there. We're going to be in Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 22 this morning. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. And the title of this sermon is Gospel Fruit. I wonder if any of you sports fans out there have ever experienced an intense rivalry with another team. You know, there's that one team that you just despise. In our home, it's definitely the Dodgers. Yeah. <laughs> Cruz knows um, if he ever came home wearing a Dodgers hat, I, I might disown him. I'm just kidding, kind of. Um, but you know how those rivalries go. Uh, in Oklahoma, for the most part, college football is king. Um, and you pretty much root either for OU, Oklahoma University, or OSU, Oklahoma State. So either you're a Sooner or a Cowboy. And on a sports level, if you're an OSU fan anyway, you don't root for OU for anything. Uh, their fans can be obnoxious and bandwagon, don't even get me started. What I'm driving at is there's a real divine. Well, several years ago, we saw something kind of cool happen in Oklahoma City. For the first time ever, they got a professional sports team. They got the New Orleans Hornets after Hurricane Katrina. And this eventually led to them getting their very own permanent NBA team, the Oklahoma City Thunder. And here's what happened. OU fans and OSU fans both became Thunder fans. They were able to worship under the same roof. <laughs> Partially joking, but it really did bring a unique unity to the sports world in Oklahoma City. The them and us became we. This is silly and a mere sports example, but it's similar to what we'll see in today's text. Except for in the case of Ephesians 2, we're talking about real division and hostility, real hatred, real alienation, changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, let's dive into our text. Ephesians 2, 1, or 11 through 22. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, remember... That at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. 
For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Our three main points for today's text are these. Point one, remember your past. Verses 11 and 12, remember your past. Point two, remember Jesus. Verses 13 through 18. And third and finally, know your new identity. Know your new identity, verses 19 through 22. So jumping in, point one, remember your past. Look with me at verse 11. Do you see the first two words here? Therefore, remember. Therefore, remember. First off, and I know this is cliche, but it's actually great advice. If you're reading through the Bible and you see this word, therefore, you should ask what it's there for. Some of you have heard that. Whatever Paul's about to say is an application of something that he just said before. So if I say, there's a truck coming down the road at 90 miles per hour, therefore, don't step out into the road, what came before the therefore matters. It informs what comes after. Same here. Paul says, therefore. So, what came before it? Paul, as we saw last week, he's just told us the truth that we were dead. That God made us alive in Christ. And that we were God's workmanship, created to do what? Good works. Therefore... Remember. Remember. Isn't that fascinating? This is the first and one of only two imperatives or commands in the entire first half of the book of Ephesians. Have you noticed that? People think that the Bible and Christianity, for that matter, is just a big list of rules. Do this. Don't do that. Can't you read the sign? These commands are imperatives. And this is the first one in the book of Ephesians. And what I want us to see is that this is gospel grammar. We've talked about this before, but the indicative always precedes the imperative. The indicative always precedes the imperative. Say it with me. The indicative always precedes the imperative. What does that mean? It means this, who God is and what he's done for us, the indicative or, or statements of fact, always, always, always comes before what God commands of us, the imperative or commands. Who God is and what he's done for us comes before what he commands of us. We see this even with the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 3, it says this, And God spoke all these words, saying, look at verse 2, what is it? 
It's a statement of fact of who God is. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That's what he's done for us. And out of the house of slavery. Then, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Boom, 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 boom. All the way down the Ten Commandments. I know I've pointed this out before, but this is the general structure of most of Paul's letters. The front half of the book is all about who God is and what he's done for us. The second half is in light of these truths, let's do this or let's do that. Okay, well, we're not to the halfway point of Ephesians yet, but what I'm wanting us to see is that the first several chapters are pretty much imperative-free. This is the first one. And what is it? Therefore, remember. Interesting, right? Remember. Why does Paul want us to remember? Because we're a forgetful, prideful people. It's so easy for us to to slip back into pride, thinking that we did something, or or we, we were something that made us worthy of God saving us. But Paul just spent an entire chapter and a half dispelling this myth, right? We were chosen before the foundation of the world, adopted, brought out of death and made alive by grace, not of our own works. Remembering gives us a greater sense of gratitude for who God is and what he's done. So what is it that they and we are being called to remember? Let's continue on in our text. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, here's the basic distinction. There were Jews, God's people, and Gentiles, everyone else. Gentiles is the word ethnos, So think non-Jewish ethnicity. It can also be translated nations, ethnos. So if you're here today and you're not Jewish, you're a what? Gentile. This is you. So think about this. Uh, All that we learned last week about being dead spiritually, it's true of both Jews and Gentiles. But what Paul says here is that for Gentiles, it's actually worse. Not only were they dead, they didn't even have the advantages that Jews had. Paul begins by somewhat jesting about the labels, the the uncircumcision and the circumcision. But he's saying that there's a physical difference between Gentiles and Jews. And he makes this point that this is done in the flesh by hand. But we know from Jeremiah chapter 4 and Romans 32, 9, that God is most interested in the heart and the circumcision of the heart. Romans 32, 9, or sorry, 3.29 says this, But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not for man, 
but from God. He's saying this isn't about skin, but about the heart. Nonetheless, these labels still existed. And Paul reminds them that they were clearly labeled as outsiders, uncircumcision. But it's more than that. He goes on to list five different truths about their and our past. They were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. Alienated. So let's walk through these quickly. Number one, they were Christless. They're separated from Christ, the Messiah. Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5 says, They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. The Gentiles were separated from the messianic hope of Israel. They didn't have Christ or his salvation. So they're Christless. Second, they were stateless. In our text, Paul says that they're alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. In other words, they weren't citizens. They weren't part of the people of God. They didn't have community with God's people. They were clear outsiders, foreigners with no homeland. You can imagine what that might feel like. So they're Christless and they're stateless. Third, they were friendless. God had consistently and clearly pursued his people in real relationship throughout the Old Testament. And he did this through covenants or promises that he made to them. God made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15 and 17. He made a covenant with Isaac in Genesis 26. He made a covenant with Jacob in Genesis 28. He made a covenant with Israel as a whole in Exodus 24. And then with King David in 2 Samuel 7. And these were the basis of Israel's relationship to God. And the Gentiles were strangers to the covenants of promise. So they're Christless, they're stateless, they're friendless. And fourth and fifth, they're hopeless and godless. Again, throughout the Old Testament, and particularly starting with Abraham, God blessed his people to what? Be a blessing. But the Gentiles didn't know this. They weren't aware that there even was a promise like this. If you know that the God of the universe, think about this. If you know that the God of the universe, the one who created and sustains all things, if you know that that God has made you a promise, that changes your outlook on life, doesn't it? But the Gentiles had no such hope. They were without God in the world. So do you see that on top of being spiritually dead, the Gentiles had it even worse. They were dead and alienated. And here's the truth. We are too. We were too. Before Christ, this was our story. 
We were Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. We need to remember this today. Remember your past. Point two, remember Jesus. Remember Jesus. Last week, we talked about two of the greatest words in Scripture, but God. After telling us how dead we were in our sins, Paul gave us the good news, starting with, but God. Well, this text follows the same pattern with another great but statement to show contrast to everything that he's just told us. Look at verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So we're moving from our past, what we were, to our present. But now. But now. If this were a movie, this is where the music would shift from from daunting to hopeful. The sun would start coming through the windows. You'd hear birds tweeting. You'd see smiles on people's faces. But now. And again, Paul reminds us that all of this good news that he's about to share is in Christ. It's due to our union with him. Look at what he says. You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. By the blood of Christ. A lot of people who are unfamiliar with Christianity or or don't understand it are turned off by all of this blood language. Why do we as Christians talk and sing and pray so much about the blood? Because it's our only hope. Jesus' blood is the sweetest treasure in all the world. In Genesis chapter 3, we learned that Adam and Eve sinned and that their sin meant their death. But God was patient. He was merciful to them. What did he do? Adam and Eve tried to hide from him. They tried to cover their shame and their guilt with fig leaves. But God pursued them and he gave them a gift. Look at this. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, says this, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And instead of them dying on the spot, which is what they deserved, God killed an animal instead. And he covered up their shame and their guilt. They were taken care of by the shedding of blood. So understand this. Blood should cause us to realize the gravity of our sin. Sin isn't just a mistake. It's not an oopsie. Our sin results in death. It results in blood being shed. Sin is never a minor incursion because it's always against a holy God. I was talking to someone about this last week. Asher, our little two-year-old son, he, he doesn't understand the cost of things. He can't. He's two. He loves drawing on things. 
Well, imagine, imagine if Asher were to take a screwdriver that he found laying out in the garage and take it out to my car in the driveway to do some drawing on my car doors. Do you think he'd understand what that costs? Or the amount of damage that he's done? No. How could he? Well, it's the same with each and every one of our sins. We sin against a holy God. And our sin deserves death and costs the shedding of blood. Blood should cause us to realize the gravity of our sin. Fast forward. God gives his people the sacrificial system. In the temple, you could make atonement for your sins through the killing of an animal. Your sin was symbolically transferred to an animal which was then slaughtered on your behalf. Its blood, or its death, was in place of yours. As we sang earlier, it bore the wrath reserved for you. But look at what Hebrews chapter 10 says about this. Hebrews 10 verses 1 through 4. It says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible, impossible, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. A couple verses later, he goes on to say this, starting in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Look at verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In a simple way, think about the sacrificial system as a placeholder. The blood of bulls and goats couldn't fully do away with our sin. Why? Because a bull cannot truly be a substitute for a human. Only a human can be a substitute for a human. And it had to be a perfect one. There's only been one of those in history. Jesus Christ. And his blood, his death on the cross, was in place of ours. That's why we can't get over the blood as Christians. It's our life. It's our only reason for hope or confidence that we can draw near to God. We know that without Christ's blood, we have no business approaching God's throne. Now, if, if the sacrificial system covered over our sin... Christ's blood actually washes our sin away. What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And look at the blood's effects 
This is astounding. Back in our text, verse 14. For he, speaking of Jesus, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He himself is our peace. He's made us both one, Jews and Gentiles. He broke down the dividing wall of hostility. What's that? Well, in the temple, there was an actual wall that that separated the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple where the Jews were allowed to go. Josephus wrote about this wall and the inscriptions on them. And in 1871, and then again in 1934, they actually excavated and unearthed what Josephus actually wrote about. And here's what the signs said on this wall, this actual dividing wall of hostility. Here's what the signs said. No foreigner may enter without the, uh, within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. You see that? In other words, if you're a Gentile, don't even think about coming in. You'll be killed for doing so. There was a literal wall of hostility, a death wall of separation. While that wall would physically come crashing down in AD 70, It spiritually turned to rubble when Jesus died on the cross and rose again for our justification. The wall of hostility, the death wall, was destroyed by Christ's death. How? Verses 15 and 16. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man, in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. What's Paul saying here? It's important to know a couple of truths about this word law. If you want a deep dive into this and to be absolutely blessed, I highly recommend this book, Devoted to God by Sinclair Ferguson. Excellent, excellent chapter on the usage of the law in Scripture in here. And in this book, he reminds us this. He says this. He says, The law, or the Torah of God in the Old Testament, was, of course, much broader than the Ten Commandments. It included civil laws to govern the people in the land. It also contained ceremonial laws, especially focused on the importance of holiness, and the rituals of the sacrificial system, which would later be fulfilled in Christ. Okay, so what I want us to see is this. Within the term law, there's moral law, there's civil law, and there's ceremonial law. Moral, civil, and ceremonial law. Jesus kept the moral law in every way, in every moment. And he fulfilled the ceremonial law. In fact, all of the ceremonial laws were there to point to him. This is why his his death, burial, and resurrection made them obsolete. The event 
And the person that they were pointing to had come and completed the race. Think about something like the Boston Marathon. Out on the course, there's these signs that point the runners where to go. Go this way. Go that way. But after the race is over, those signs have done their job. That's what the ceremonial law did. It pointed God's people to God's Messiah, Jesus. And because he fulfilled the moral law on our behalf, we can go through the barrier. There's no more death wall of separation. Now, do you see what this did? In verse 14, Paul says that it made us both one. Here in verse 15, he says the one new man in place of the two. Jews, Gentiles, two become one. But look at this language closely. He doesn't say that Gentiles become Jews or that Jews become Gentiles. He says there's one new man. One commentator notes that they did not merely become one, though that is true, they have become better. John Chrysostom says this. He says, It is as though one took a statue of silver and a statue of lead and put them into a forge and they came out a statue of gold. Do you see it? In the church, through the cross of Christ, the two become one and new and better. He reconciles us to God. This is unbelievable. There's there's both a vertical and a horizontal reconciliation. We're reconciled to God, which is our primary problem. And we're united to one another. Do you remember what Paul told us in chapter 1? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. That there was a plan for the fullness of time. To do what? To unite all things in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. Do you think that that Jews and Gentiles are part of all things? Yes. He's uniting Jews and Gentiles to himself and to one another in his body, the church, of which he's the head. Paul goes on, verses 17 and 18. And he, meaning Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Same message, peace. For through him, we both have access to one spirit, to the Father. Do you see this? Jesus himself is our peace. But he also preached peace to us. He declared peace to us. How? One, through his earthly ministry. Two, through his death on the cross. And third, through his post-resurrection preaching. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 21. John 20, verses 19 through 21. It says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, so this is after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. 
Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So Jesus provided peace, and he proclaimed peace in his life and death and resurrection. And who did he preach it to? Those who were far off and those who were near. Friends, that's our calling. As Christians, we're an extension of his peace preaching. We have the honor and privilege of proclaiming peace, both to those who are far off and to those who are near, to everyone. Do you see that the root of the gospel produces gospel fruit? Say that again. The root of the gospel produces gospel fruit, the fruit of unity. Because we're reconciled to God, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. There should be more unity in the church than anywhere else in the world. Because of our union with Christ, all of our other designators take a back seat. Us and them becomes we. Paul reinforces this in Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 and 28. He says, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ, that's union language, as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Again, he's not saying that these real distinctions disappear. But he is saying that they cease to matter in comparison to who we are in Christ. As the saying goes, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. We're all saved in the same way by the same person, by grace, through faith, in Christ. Practically, this makes the church an outpost of heaven. What do we see in heaven? Revelation chapter 7. Verses 9 through 10 says, After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You see that? Uh, Around the throne of God in heaven, nations and tribes and people and languages still exist, but they're unified around one purpose, proclaiming God's excellencies through Christ. God doesn't call us to uniformity, but he does call us to unity in the body of Christ. This is gospel fruit that comes from the gospel root the root of salvation by grace through faith. We'll talk a lot more about the results of this when we get to Ephesians 3, but I'll leave it at this. The world around us will continue always to rage on in hostility based on external things like ethnic background, economic status, and much, much more. They're going to continue to rage The church is to be a display of the gospel. 
It's meant to be a fruit stand for people to taste and see that the Lord is good. The gospel reconciles us both to God and to one another in creating a new man in the church. Point three, know your new identity. Know your new identity. So after calling us to remember our past and the reconciliation that Christ has given us, both vertically and horizontally, Paul tells us that we have a new identity. Look at verses 19 through 22. He says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Remember where we started? Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, and godless. No longer. Paul tells us that in Christ, we're citizens, we're family members, and a holy temple. What a transformation. First, citizens. Citizens. Think about the opposite of this. To be a foreigner can be very vulnerable, unstable, not knowing whether you'll be deported or kicked out of the country. Further, there are certain things that foreigners simply can't do in the country they're in. Not so for a citizen. Paul, of all people, knew how this worked. In the book of Acts, he proudly proclaimed his Roman citizenship with all of its rights and privileges. In Christ, you're a citizen of a kingdom that has no end. You're safe, secure, stable. You're a part of God's family. You're a citizen. Second, you're a member of the household of God. So you're a citizen, and then second, you're a member of the household of God, part of God's family. This is unreal. You, Christian, you're a son or a daughter of God. Again, this has both vertical and horizontal implications, doesn't it? You have status and an inheritance as God's child in God's family. He loves and cares about you as a family member. Isn't that amazing? There's a vertical aspect to being in the family of God. But second, as children of God, other Christians are our brothers and our sisters. Horizontal. How do you treat your brothers or sisters? Maybe I shouldn't ask that. How should you treat your brothers and sisters? You love them. You show grace and mercy to them, even when they frustrate you. You go looking for them when they're not at the dinner table. Think about this. If your brother or sister didn't show up for dinner, would you just shrug your shoulders and say, bummer, guess they're just missing out? No. You'd send a search party for them. Not out of legalism, but because you love them and you care for them deeply. 
Look at verse 20. What is this household built on? Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. There's so much to say here. But here's the point. The church, as God's household, is built on the foundation of God's word. The apostles and the prophets. With Christ Jesus being the most important stone in the whole building. The stone that every other stone is set against and built upon. Friends, if your church is built upon the foundation of programs, or on the foundation of entertainment, or on the foundation of politics, or on the foundation of relevance, or on the foundation of anything else, find another church. God's household is built upon God's word, with Jesus holding the whole thing together. A church will stand or fall based on its faithfulness to God's word. You're a citizen and a family member. Third, you're the temple. You're the temple. Think about this. Before, they weren't allowed to enter the temple. And now, they are the temple. Tony Marita points out that in Ephesus, there was a great temple of Artemis. Remember that? And then in Jerusalem, there's the Jewish temple. Both of those structures were magnificent. In Christ, you are that temple, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. And every stone matters. 1 Peter 2 4 through 5. It says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Christians, God is using you to display his glory. Here's what I want us to see. In the gospel, certainly we as individuals are changed. But we're not saved to just remain changed individuals. Each of these new identities is intensely corporate. Intensely corporate. Citizens, family members, stones are meant to be part of something bigger than themselves. That something bigger is the church. In the New Testament, there's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. God saves us into community. God saves us into community. The gospel changes things dramatically. In closing, I want us to just spend some time together meditating on before and after. If you're a Christian, here's your past. You're dead. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. Carrying out the desires of body and mind. By nature, children of wrath. Uncircumcised. Separated from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of God's people. Strangers to the covenants of promise without hope, and without God. 
after your life. You're loved by God, raised up with Christ, seated in the heavenly places. You're a recipient of divine kindness, saved by grace. You're God's workmanship. You're brought near, reconciled, united with fellow believers, enjoying access to God. You're a fellow citizen with the saints. You're a family member. You're built into the temple of God. Enjoying access with God. Your fellow citizens with the saints. Family member built into the temple of God. Jesus changes people. There's no such thing as an unchanged Christian. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, I'm so glad you're here. You're always welcome here. And we hope that you've experienced a little bit of this today. Experiencing the love and fellowship of Christ through his people. But we will have failed you if we don't extend to you this invitation. We invite you today to, to give your life to Christ. Turn from sin and trust in Jesus. Let him change you like that, from the inside out. And if that's you, I'd love to talk to you after the service. I'll be standing out in the parking lot. Come grab me and talk. I'd love to hear about what the Lord might be doing in your heart. The root of the gospel, the root of the gospel produces fruit in unity and community. Isn't the gospel good? Let's pray.